everyone, and welcome to the Prevention Connection podcast, where we talk to people um, working to prevent alcohol, tobacco, and drug misuse in the community. I'm Emmy Reiner, coordinator of the Jefferson County Drug-Free Coalition and podcast host. And on today's podcast, I'm happy to introduce you to Anthony Harris, who is currently the Youth Harm Reduction Coordinator at Diverse and Resilient. And yeah, Anthony, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super excited about being here um, and uh, talking about uh, alcohol prevention. Yeah, so I know we talked a little bit about your work previously, but if you could just tell our group here, um, you know, we're in Jefferson County, as you know, and I know you're in Milwaukee area, but um, what your organization, which is Diverse and Resilient, um, does in general, and then just your role um, in this field with the Youth Harm Reduction Program. Yeah, so uh, Diverse and Resilient is an LGBTQ public health organization. We're based out of Milwaukee. Um, we also have an office up in the Appleton area. Um, and we do have a statewide focus. And, our, and the focus of our work is trying to address the health disparities that LGBTQ people in Wisconsin are facing. Um, and so we do that in a variety of ways. Um, we do a lot of prevention work and that's where a lot, where a lot of my work um, is, uh, is squarely in is in that prevention field of talking to people about the ways in which they can reduce the risks associated with um, some of these health disparities. So whether it's substance use or, um, or uh, cancer or violence um, or um, ST, STIs, um, wherever those places are, we're trying to do some prevention work. And so talking to people about ways in which they can protect themselves, ways in which that they can um, lower those risks, of whether it's infection or the risks of, um, you know, getting into trouble if you're drinking alcohol um, or, or the risks of being in an unhealthy relationship. Um, and so uh, the work that I do is really focused on young people. And so I go to a lot of schools. I talk to uh, groups of students um, about these things. Um, I also work with a small group of young people um, and uh, we work with them so that way they can learn how to talk to their peers about these sort of things as a peer to peer sort of um, uh, program, recognizing that, you know, me as a, a 40 year old coming into the school saying, oh, this is the ways you can reduce risk. I mean, yeah, the young people will, will hear it, but they'll hear it much better if it's coming from their friend, right? Um, and so, um, so that's also a part of that work. Um, and so that's sort of the prevention work. We also have a lot of direct service work here at Diverse and Resilient as well. Um, and so some of our direct service work looks like um, our, our uh, testing program. So people can come in and get tested for HIV or syphilis or any other STI. Um, so that way they can know their status. Um, and with that, um, then hopefully we can get them connected to resources. So that way if they have something they can get it taken care of so that doesn't have to negatively affect them. Um, we also have our uh, Room to Be Safe program, which is specifically um, an anti-violence program. Um, and so we have, um, um, what we lovingly call a warm line. Um, unfortunately, we don't have the resources to be active 
active 24 seven all the time like we'd like to. Um, but um, it's a number that anyone in the state of Wisconsin who's LGBTQ facing violence, whether it's in their home, in the community or with a, or with a partner um, can call this number um, and get support from an advocate um, to help them figure out what, what are the best steps for them. So whether, you know, doing some safety planning, um, if they need someone to assist them in uh, navigating the, the legal field around, you know, um, if something like that is ne necessary, we can help them through that process. Um, and so there's a lot of different things that we can do in that realm. And then we also have our uh, peer navigator program, um, which is one of our new, newest programs here at Diverse and Resilient. Um, and that's specifically having uh, folks um, do case management work with people living with HIV um, who, are, who might be having a difficult time connecting to care, maybe getting their medications, being able to consistently take their medications. Um, and so, the, uh, so these folks work with people um, uh, to try to help them figure out what, what they can do. So that way they can be in care, they they can get their medications and hopefully get their viral load suppressed so that way they can live ha happier and healthier lives. And what we know now um, through uh, medical technology is that um, you know, if someone gets their viral load to an un undetectable level, um, then they're not going to be passing it on to other people. And so, you know, we uh, Wisconsin is a low incident states for HIV, and we'd love to get to a no incident state, right? Um, uh, and so this is uh, some of the, the tactics that we're using to try to get to that, um, is helping those people who are living with HIV. And so, so that's the kind of work here we do at Diverse and Resilient. Um, you know, we do, um, you know, our focus is on the LGBTQ community. Um, what I know is that in our, in our work of um, prevention, um, it can always be difficult to know who I'm talking to that's LGBTQ or not. And so one of the things that we've started doing is really just sort of um, sharing all of our information with any group that wants to listen and just really not backing off on the pieces in which it affects the LGBTQ community. And so our Thinking Under the Influence program, which is our alcohol prevention program, is one such program where, where we really do that. And so we actually, when we do these presentations in schools or with other youth organizations or even in colleges, um, you know, while our focus is on trying to reach the LGBTQ population, I'm not necessarily just going to GSAs, right? I'm going to um, any sort of classroom or uh, assembly or presentation that's going to give me access to young people to really just let's talk about alcohol. Let's talk about alcohol use. Let's talk about why we use alcohol. Um, let's talk about the risks associated with using alcohol. And then let's talk about what could we do to reduce some of those risks. Obviously, abstinence is like the best way to reduce the risks, right? But, um, you know, you know, what are if someone's not going to abstain, what else could we do? What else could we do to reduce some of those risks associated? And how can we better think about um, how we make decisions about alcohol? And so that's sort of like the the premise of the thinking under the influence program. And one of the reasons why I really like it is it has that focus on harm reduction. Um, you know, I think we I, I think all of us in this field around um, substance use prevention can recognize that abstinence is the best way, but we also all recognize that not everyone can abstain. Not everyone, you know, for whatever reason, um, abstaining just is not an option within their life. And so I think uh, harm reduction gives us another tool to work with people to help them maybe make some, take some steps towards possibly um, sobriety, possibly completely um, uh, cutting it out of their life or not, or not and, and um, using it. But um, if, if we can't get them there, at least perhaps maybe we can lower some of those risks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, um, I'm really glad that you focus on, on harm reduction because, you know, we always talk about prevention, but there's many different parts of prevention. I mean, there's primary prevention. We're trying to get kids to not use at all and just wait until they're of age to use alcohol. But then, um, but sometimes, yeah, you're right. It's not always realistic for um, some people to abstain completely. Um, and in those situations, yeah, um, what are some of those, you know, harm reduction strategies? But I'm glad you brought up the fact that you don't really avoid the LGBTQ topic because I think when we're going out and doing presentations, a lot of times we're not trying to avoid it, but we don't necessarily um, include the topics that might be pertinent to that population. And, and I'm glad you um, do touch on that because um, there are people in the audience and you know youth audiences who. Um, you know, identify as um, LGBTQ, and I think that it's really appreciated when when you talk about that. Um, yeah, so I know alcohol use is kind of your primary area of prevention, um, but, you know, we talked about this earlier about how a lot of advertising and marketing um, of alcohol products and just the culture um, of sort of the LGBTQ community? I mean, it does involve alcohol. And I'm just wondering, um, can you kind of make those intersections a little more clear? Because I mean, it's not always clear because we, we don't know that, you know, a larger percentage of LGBTQ, LGBTQ community uses alcohol more than like the rest of the population. But we know that it's, um, there's sort of a culture around that, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So a couple things. Uh, first, um, so uh, it, one of the things that's really hard when we're talking about LGBTQ health in general is um, the data. The data is always hard to find. There isn't a, as much data specifically about the LGBTQ population as it is about the, the population as a whole. Um, and one of the data sources we use a lot is the Youth Risk Behavior Survey or the YRBS. Um, and, um, and that really gives us a really good uh, look at sort of at least what our young people are saying, right, about their usage and that sort of stuff. And what we find from the YRBS is that LGBTQ young people do identify at a slightly higher rate than um, their heterosexual counterparts do um, when it comes to use of alcohol. Um, but it's not, it's not a really significantly higher portion because in Wisconsin, I, I would say Wisconsin in general has a drinking problem. Um, but, uh, but what we do find is that LGBTQ young people People, um, initiate drinking at a lot earlier ages than their heterosexual counterparts. And when they participate in drinking, they participate in much higher rates of binge drinking than their heterosexual counterparts. Um, and so, um, and then, and, but, and to lead that into what you were talking about is that I think, you know, Wisconsin is sort of like an exception. I think in most other states, you're going to find those rates of young people that identify as LGBTQ um, ranking a lot higher than the heterosexual peers. I think um, Wisconsin just has this really unique sort of drinking culture that encourages everyone to drink. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, when it comes to LGBTQ folks, uh, the reason why we see some of the higher rates within that community um, really stems from a lot of things. And one of them 
is when you talked about advertising. And so, um, you know, right now, I don't think anyone would blink an eye at a company advertising and, and marketing to the LGBTQ community. I mean, we just had June and everything was rainbow everything. And so that's the that's reality now. But that was not always the reality. And for a long time, a lot of companies really did not want to be associated uh, with the LGBTQ community. They didn't want people thinking they were selling to the LGBTQ community or accepting of the LGBTQ community. And so there wasn't a lot of um, attention put towards that community. Um, and there are a couple industries, though, that were, you know, brave enough and willing enough or just really wanted to make enough money um, that were willing to dip into that. And the, one of those first industries was the alcohol industry. Um, and so alcohol and tobacco, both of them were two of the first industries that really marketed directly towards LGBTQ people um, in a way um, to show, hey, we care about you. We think you're awesome. We think your community deserves rights and, and all those things. And so, we're, and so as LGBTQ folks, we're like, yes, that's awesome. You see me for who I am. You believe that I, I deserve to exist, right? I deserve to exist. I mean, like, it's so hard to think like that's how excited we were, just deserve to exist, right? And so for those reasons, there's a lot of sort of like brand loyalty and um, and being and, and that sort of thing. Another reason why we um, see a lot of LGBTQ folks um, using alcohol at higher rates is also thinking about where community spaces were. Um, again, this is something that's changing. And so I'm super happy to see that these things are changing. So that way, hopefully in the future, this isn't the issue. Um, but in the past, like, you know, a lot, there hasn't been a lot of community spaces for LGBTQ folks. Oftentimes, the only space in a community or maybe it's a couple towns away um, is the gay bar right and so like the reality of um, you know where you know I'm feeling isolated where I'm at um, I I need to find people who are like me but I'm afraid to let people know because of what could happen to me and so where can I go oh I hear in this bar an hour and a half away um, that it's a gay bar I could probably go there and meet other gay folks and of course while you're at the bar then like I mean it's drink beer, here's a beer special, or here's this sort of thing, or, you know, whatever it is. And so that really encourages more of that drinking um, um, culture. Um, and so that's part of the reason why we see some of those higher rates um, when it comes to that. So that the direct advertising from the industry, the lack of community spaces that weren't centered around drinking, um, uh, and um, as well as community events. And so when we think about Pride Fest, you know, and I, one of the things I was really happy about this year um, in June was there's a lot of pushback about what does pride actually mean? You know, remembering that pride started with um, uh, uh, civil unrest. Um, it started with um, people just being uh, put up and done and not want and can't taking it anymore. Um, and, you know, it started from specifically cops raiding the one place that LGBT people had bars, um, you know, and, and to, to try to um, implement um, really archaic laws, you know, so, you know, they, they, would, they would go in um, and they would raid folks based on the number of uh, proper gendered clothing items they were wearing, or they would go in and they would raid people and arrest people if they were dancing with someone of the same gender. And, you know, and so like, and, and but they're just going into this bar and raiding this bar um, and harassing these people. And at one point, the people in this one bar, the Stonewall Inn said, you know what, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And no, you can't just come in here and disrupt my community. No, you can't just come in here and drag me out because you don't like who I am. And I'm going to fight against that. And that's how that all started. You know, and I think a lot of people sometimes forget that's where Pride was. But, you know, to my point of what I'm saying is that the reality is, is that most Pride events 
are centered around alcohol, are centered around sort of a celebration, a party atmosphere, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's the only space that people have to celebrate being who they are, or that's the only space that people have to experience what it means to be in a community with LGBTQ folks, then they associate those activities with that identity. And the reality is, is that um, being LGBTQ does not mean you need to be a partier, does not mean that you need to be a drinker, does not mean that you have to like enjoy alcohol or always be surrounded by um, people in, uh, drinking alcohol. That's not what it means to be an LGBTQ person. Mm -hmm. And so I think that as, um, our uh, country has become, um, is becoming more tolerant. And I think there's still some room for growth there, but I think it's becoming more tolerant as that's happening. More spaces are opening up for LGBTQ people to have that is just a space. It has nothing to do with alcohol, has nothing to do with the bar, but it's a space for community. You know, we're seeing that in schools. Um, you know, a lot of schools are having GSAs or having spaces where LGBTQ students can um, uh, have community and see each other um, and, um, and be safe. Um, and so all of those things I think are leading to a change um, but, um, you know, when we're talking about alcohol use, um, the reality is, is we still have some disparities there, you know, and so that's one of the reasons why at Diverse and Resilient, we try to focus on that and we try to provide resources um, and uh, programming um, in a prevention aspect, as well as connections to sort of um, other um, care places. So we work with a few places here in Milwaukee specifically that have some, you know, LGBTQ or um, really affirming sort of AA meetings for people who want to quit drinking, um, but like sometimes AA, which can be really steeped in religion, and sometimes that can be a conflict. Not all LGBT people have conflict with religion, but some people do, and for that reason, sometimes, you know, an AA meeting, while they could really utilize that, um, becomes really difficult for them to be able to utilize if it's still stuck in that. And so there are some um, that don't necessarily focus on as many of the spiritual aspects of AA, but um, some of the other more community support, how do we help people who want to be in sobriety, stay in sobriety, um, all of those things, they can still have that um, and do that in a way where they don't have to feel like they're outing themselves or they don't have to do that in a way where they feel like they're going to be uh, put down or, um, or treated differently because they're LGBTQ. They just want to go and get the help that they want. And so, so on the care side, you know, we do have some connections and resources we can connect people to if they're wanting to become um, sober or wanting to um, uh, lower the or you know lower the amounts that they're drinking or if it's other substance uses um, we have other connections and so so for us it's important to talk about it it's important to um address it as a community issue um uh and then as well as um you know, cultivating some of those resources. And so um, some of the other work we do are would be trainings. So we do trainings for organizations um, to help them become more LGBTQ competent, recognizing that, you know, you know, we know uh, what we can do and we know we can't do it all. And so and so instead, what we can do is the people who do it well, so maybe there's a good um, substance abuse um, uh, care facility, but they just could really use some help on being more LGBTQ competent or, or accepting or welcoming space and whatever that could, whatever that could mean. And so we work with those folks to try to help that happen. So that way the LGBTQ people in that community then can have an access to a resource that could be necessary for them um, should they need it. And so I think, you know, I think all of those things are important. Yeah, I love that. Um, yeah, competency is so important for, you know, people working in the care community and health and uh, advocacy. So, um, I wanted to go back to the prevention side, and I, I think this is all great. 
Um, you mentioned GSAs in the school. Some people might not know what those are. And I'm just wondering, um, can you talk about those and what, what some young people are doing in those kind of organizations? Sure. Um, you know, so GSA stands for Gay Straight Alliance. Um, and, you know, and, and, and not every school calls it a GSA. Sometimes it's a uh, like uh, a gender and sexual sexuality equality space, um, I've seen it called. Um, but ultimately, what it is is, I mean, it, it's different for each school. So that's one of the things that you'll you if you've ever done this work, you'll find that none of it's all like exactly the same. Um, so each school is a little bit different. Each group is a little bit different. But there's a lot of it is focused on um, giving young people a space to be able just to like talk about what's going on for them. So sometimes it's much more of a social support group, and so um, people talk about you know what's going well for them what's not going well for them and then the things that are not going well or the challenges is there something are there some ideas in which people can support them in that so there's sort of that aspect of it and then there's some groups that are a lot more like advocacy minded so they're very much so about like planning events trying to raise awareness and so oftentimes they'll throw um like day of silence events at their schools or they might work with some other schools in the area and do um, a, like an, a region-wide um, LGBTQ prom. So a, an inclusive prom uh, where young folks can feel like they can go um, and, you know, just, just have, you know, have their own prom experience. Right. Um, and so, I mean, so there's sometimes that it's that um, sometimes um, what can happen is also it ends up being a space for um, straight allies to learn about what it means to be a straight ally too. Um, you know, I think there's a lot, lot of folks, especially as we are, um, you know, increasing our tolerance in our, in our communities, who are who want to be like, you know what, I, I want to be an ally, I am a straight ally, you know, I, you know, I don't, I don't dislike gay people, I don't hate them for who they are. And I, I think they deserve rights. And, you know, so they want to be an ally. But I think um, one of the things that's interesting is that, um, you know, there, you know, you can do that. But you know, one of the things that's really helpful to minority groups are allies that are, I always say allies that are verbs and not nouns, right. Um, so an ally that that is doing something, you know, standing up for someone, calling out, um, you know, things that shouldn't be that shouldn't be done, that sort of thing. Um, and that's a difficult thing to do, right? That's that's hard. That's hard to ask an ally to do to stand up and call out um, those things in a you know in a, in a space because their their own safety might you know be in danger should they do that. And so that can be hard to do. Um, and one of the things I think is interesting in these GSAs is it gives. Um, young allies and ability to think about like, what kind of ally do I want to be? And if there's nothing wrong with being an ally that isn't willing to stand up or isn't willing to call out things because they feel unsafe, that I don't want to, I don't want people to feel unsafe. Um, and I think that's fine, but just to recognize sort of like what other things could you be doing? And so sometimes those allies, instead of standing up against the oppressor, their role they take on is that of supporting the person who's being affected. So maybe they couldn't in the moment stand up and say, that's not okay to say that, but afterwards go to their friend and be like, wow, I'm really sorry you had to go through that. They shouldn't have said that. And, you know, and is there, I mean, I'm here for you and support them after the fact too. And so there's different ways. So like young people can figure out what does that mean for them and how do they build those solid solid, um, genuine relationships with one another um, that I think ultimately leads to a much healthier community, right? Um, you know, and so, I mean, so I think those are the things that are really important about GSAs. Um, you know, the one thing that can, can be difficult about GSAs is oftentimes, um, you know, GSAs, they, they have to have a teacher or some adult that's willing to supervise. Um, and sometimes there are adults in the school that are like, yes, we definitely need a GSA. Let's do this. And they're, and they're spearheading it. And they're, and they're trying to, you know, find the young people and engage the young people. Some, some schools, that's not, there isn't necessarily an adult that's 
wanting to do that or stepping forward to do that. And it's the young people who are like, no, this is what we need. We need a GSA. And so they're the ones spearheading it. They're the ones pushing for it. And then it's just them finding someone that's willing to sit and like, you know, quote unquote, babysit them while they do their meeting, um, you know, sort of thing. And so it, it looks very different in different schools. Um, and so um, it's really hard to just say GSAs are one thing. Um, but ultimately, I think um, the best way to think about it is it's a great place for LGBTQ young people and um, their heterosexual peers to be able to find community with one another, figure out how do we how do we be in spaces together and support one another in, in, in our community. Because ultimately that's I think what we all want to get to. We want to be in all we want we all want to be in communities that support one another, that accept mm -hmm. one another, and that are um, that are there to build a better, more prosperous community for everyone to be able to enjoy, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think GSAs kind of are that start for that. Right, right. Yeah, I love the idea that you're really cultivating a safe space for these young people and really encouraging, um, you know, others to learn about, you know, the topics that other youth might be going through. And um, so, yeah, that's a, that's a really great resource. I mean, not all, obviously not all schools have that or youth have access to that. But, um, but yeah, I was, yeah, that was my question about, you know, what are some of those community spaces and and um you know in the in sort of the bigger communities um it seems like it would be a little easier but you know sometimes in the rural communities probably a little bit harder you know just because there's fewer people but um you know hopefully it'll start to catch on you know i feel like there's been a lot of progress made um in the last you know 20 years since i was a you know a young person or 30s i, I really should um, say it's much more than that. Um, <laughs> but uh, so as far, well, let me just um, look at what are some, um, well, some key points that you talk to youth about in your prevention talks about alcohol use in general. Like, Oh, so yeah. So um, some of the key points are, I think the things I think are, have the biggest impact with young folks um, are the things that I talk about less about necessarily like how alcohol works. I think it's important to talk about how alcohol works in the body. How does someone actually get drunk? How does someone actually get sober? How does alcohol affect the body? What is actually happening in the science of it? Because we know a lot of it. So it's great yeah. to teach them that. But I think what's most effective is when I talk about sort of the more social issues. And it's really sort of an aha moment. because um, And I mentioned this earlier about I feel like Wisconsin has a drinking problem. And the reason why I bring that up is that, and this is a big one that the young people get a big takeaway from is that, you know, when we make decisions about our behaviors, we are vastly influenced by the world around us, right? And so if we live in a, um, in a culture or society uh, in which drinking is something that happens on the regular in which drinking happens in um, higher amounts um, for a variety of reasons, then as a young person, when you're trying to figure out how do I operate in this world, you're going to mimic what you see happening around you. And so um, one of the things I always like to talk to people about are, you know, I always ask them, well, what do you think is a standard? What do you think is, a no is normal drinking? What does normal drinking look like to you, right? And so I'll ask the young people, like, what does normal drinking look like to you? And oftentimes what I'm hearing um, are reports of really closer to over drinking and binge drinking um, behaviors. So, you know, having, oh, 
just, you know, three or four beers in a sitting um, or, you know, and definitely, you know, had, you know, drinking a few, you know, you know, multiple nights a week is pretty normal that they see, you know, because when we talk about it, you know, they, you know, they, they talk about, you know, not only, you know, seeing their parents or other people, or sometimes they might even admit themselves um, being in situations where, you know, you know, people will go out drinking on this, you know, on Friday night, sometimes they'll go out Saturday nights. And then of course, you know, during the Packer game, there's going to be a couple beers that are going to be have at least at the bare minimum, right? You know, it's just, just like this whole like idea that like drinking is very normalized, you know? And so I start with that and I start with what is normal drinking to you? And then I, and then I tell them, well, according to the CDC, you know, you know, two drinks, two or two, maybe three maximum in a setting for, uh, for someone who's male and one to two for someone who's female in a setting. And they're like, oh, is that all? Well, yeah, that, that's pretty, that's, that, that's, that's normal drinking. That's what we see in most other spaces, but in Wisconsin, um, it's vastly different. And then I go in and talk about why that is. That then uh, it's the three A's that help us shape the ways in which we we do things. And so that's the affordability, accessibility, and acceptability, right? Um, you know, so when you look at affordability, Wisconsin has the lowest tax rates on alcohol in all of the 50 states. The lowest tax rates on alcohol, whether it's beer, wine, or liquor, at the state level, we charge the least amount for that. And what that means is that rolls over into the retail space. And so the retailers who are selling alcohol are selling alcohol at a lot cheaper rate than people would find elsewhere. And so alcohol is really cheap to buy in Wisconsin. So that makes it very, very affordable. The next one is the acceptability piece. And this one's a little harder to measure, but like how acceptable is something? How do we know if something's acceptable? And some of the things we look at are the laws in which that we have that dictate um, uh, behavior around that. And so I think the one thing that we all can agree that shouldn't be happening is drinking and driving, right? And so, but if you look at the Wisconsin's drinking and driving laws and you compare them just to our two like neighboring states, Minnesota and Illinois, our drinking, our um, uh, drunk driving laws are severely um, uh, less um, restrictive and uh, less punitive than those other states are. Um, so on, on a first offense in both of those states, there's possible jail time. Um, and a on a first offense in both of those states, um, you have to put um, a, an ignition interlock device in your vehicle um, that you have to blow into to prove that you're not drunk before your car will even start again. In Wisconsin, nah. Um, a lot of those states, they don't even have laws for what happens after you get your uh, third DUI. In Wisconsin, we have laws that go up to like six DUIs. Um, you know, and so the reality is, is like, you know, yes, you will get in trouble for it. You won't get uh, fined as much. You probably won't have jail time and it won't affect you as negatively as other places. And so again, in Wisconsin, what we're telling people is, yeah, you shouldn't drink and drive, but if you do, I'm gonna slap you on the wrist and then move on the way. And then if you do it again, we'll slap you on the wrist again. If you do it again, we'll do it again. And then again, and again, and again, and again. You know, when we hear about people having, you know, six or seven uh, DUIs, like that's ridiculous. Nowhere else in the country are people getting six or seven DUIs. Cause after like three, the state's like, yeah, you aren't driving anymore. It's just not happening, you know? And so, I mean, so I think, you know, I so that, that leads to sort of like how we see alcohol. And then the last one is accessibility. How accessible is the alcohol? Um, and so there's um, there, uh, there a company that, um, that did, that was doing a maps and then the maps that they made were um, looking at a comparison of places to buy food compared to places that you can buy alcohol. Um, and uh, as a whole in the United States, about 13% more grocery stores than bars nationally. So about 13% more places to buy food than there are to buy alcohol. However, in Wisconsin, um, you know, it has 2.7 times the uh, bars as there are grocery stores. 
2.7 times the amount of bars compared to grocery stores. Um, so like, it's just, you, you, it's so easy to find places to buy alcohol in Wisconsin. You can buy alcohol at the bar. You can buy alcohol at the liquor store. You can buy alcohol at the quick trip. You can buy alcohol at the Walmart. You can buy alcohol at the grocery store. I mean, you can buy alcohol everywhere um and so and so because of that it's really cheap you're not going to get in a lot of trouble for doing it necessarily comparatively and um and it's really easy to find you know a stone's throw away is where you're going to find some alcohol and so all those things lead to a, a society that that um looks at drinking a lot differently um, you know, and then, and that's not even thinking about the ways in which we um, sort of um, talk about our quote unquote German heritage, right? As this very like beer drinking, you know, we have a lot of breweries in, in Wisconsin and like this is, a, this is part of our heritage, this is who we are. Interesting fact, the people who made that map with the United States did the same one for a lot of other countries, Germany being one of them. And Germany is significantly more places to buy food than it is to buy alcohol. And so as much as we like to say it's our German heritage to drink beer, and I think beer might be part of German heritage, like over drinking and the amount that we drink and the amount that we push it and have it out there, that's not, that's not German heritage, um, you know? And so, you know, I mean, that, that's just, you know, that, that's just us saying it is, you know? And so, I mean, so the realities are, is that in Wisconsin, our young people, LGBTQ or heterosexual or, or whatever, the, the messages that they get is um, that the ways in which we drink are normal. You know, so when we go out and we and we go out for a night and have four or five drinks in a night, that's normal drinking. You know, well, they didn't have 10. Well, great. I'm glad they didn't have 10, but four or five is a lot of drinks, you know. And so I think I think that's a hard thing. I think and I think that more young people need to learn that before they start drinking. And one of the things that I, I um, want to bring back up that you had mentioned in the beginning is that, yeah, we do talk about abstinence a lot. And a lot of times with young people, it's completely abstinence until they're 21, right? And we do that a lot. Until you're 21, you know, don't drink. It's really bad for you. All these things, yada, yada, yada. But then now that they're 21, did we ever talk to them about what actual responsible drinking looks like? No, we don't. We have drink responsibly on the ends of all of our sort of like alcohol commercials, right? Drink responsibly. What does that actually mean? We don't teach our young people or people in general what responsible drinking even looks like. And so we have, so we allow, we depend on them to figure it out based on the context clues of the society that they live in. And that would be fine if as a whole, we didn't like over drink and um, <laughs> indulge so much into alcohol, right? And so for those reasons, we see really high rates um, just amongst all Wisconsin young people um, drinking. Um, and a lot of that is, you know, based on that. I think it's, you know, I think if we um, were to, you know, if alcohol wasn't as, a, as inexpensive as it can be, I think there'd be less drinking. I think that if we really re-looked at our DUI laws and really brought them in line with closer with what other states are doing, I think, again, we wouldn't see as many people, um, you know, getting DUIs. Um, and I think that, um, you know, if we were to really look at the ways in which we license businesses um, and how easy it is that we give out um, liquor licenses or allow them to grandfather into something or allow them to be passed on and sold with whatever business, whatever it is, I think if we re-looked at that sort of structure, I think mm -hmm. also we could look at how, how do we then, like, change the context of the environment that we live in to not completely support um, binge drinking behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm so glad you focused on that cultural part because it really has so much to do with policy 
you know, not just at the local level, but like you were saying at the statewide level too, it, it takes a lot of time and effort to, to make those changes. But, um, but yeah, I mean, so social, um, you know, we can't not talk about parents, right? Because um, when, we, when we work with parents and we kind of talk to them about responsible drinking, you know, we're also doing prevention because the youth are seeing the parents. Um, so yeah, you know, sometimes it can be awkward for parents to talk to their young people about, you know, being responsible or, you know, abstaining if, you know, they, they aren't able to, to um, not binge drink or, you know, you know, if their drinking is, you know, problematic or, um, so yeah, I mean, how, how do you approach parents um, about those conversations that might be awkward? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, I mean, that's a hard one. You know, I think that um, it's important when you're talking with parents to remind them that, um, you know, it, it's okay for us to challenge our young people. It's okay for us to challenge our young people. And when they, and when they're young people, cause they will, cause they're really observant. They will see if mom and dad have been drinking a lot. They will see if mom and dad always have a, an extra case in, in the, in the garage ready to go. And, and they, and they'll throw it in their face. You know, if mom and dad are like, oh, you shouldn't be drinking and, you know, drinking, you know, is, is bad for you. They're going to be like, yeah, well, what about you? And, and what I would want to say is I want to challenge parents to recognize that like, Yes, I do drink and it is okay for me to drink. Um, and this is and 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 this is the reason why. And the reason why is that um, you know, not only do I have a better sense of sort of like what's going on, so like understanding like sort of like what what I can what I can handle, because you know, this is something I have been doing for a long time. Also, um, I don't have to worry about the legal consequences of me owning alcohol because I'm over the age of 21. And so Wisconsin's zero drop policy doesn't matter how little amount of alcohol you had, any amount if you're under the age of 21 and you get caught, you're gonna get a ticket. You know, so there's there's ramifications there. Um, but also recognizing that um, you know, the in the human brain is a really amazing um organ right and it takes a while to develop and um a lot of a lot of young people specifically in their teenage years they feel like an adult you know they're still they're so ready to be adults right they're so ready to be adults you know of course as adults we're like i can't i wish i was a kid again but um, <laughs> they're so ready to be adults that sometimes they we need to remind them that like look your body is still developing your body is still developing and when your body is still developing specifically your brain when it's still in that development mode um, the introduction of substances like alcohol um, can really affect the way it grows can affect um, uh, uh, what happens in your growth period and to re and help people recognize that you know I think it's 24 uh, 23 or 24 um, till the human brain is fully developed and then also to remind young people that you know what youth might not think is very dangerous understand that as young people um, again the very last part of our brains to develop is our ability to sense danger right our ability to really um, rate and, and see what that's the last part of our brains to develop is our ability to um, assess what is dangerous and what is not dangerous um, uh, which is why we see young people take such big risks it's why we see those sort of like behaviors happening because in their mind it doesn't seem like it's all that dangerous oh it'll be okay it shouldn't be that bad um and, and that and that's that's and it's no fault of their own you know as as human beings it just takes us a while to develop our brain and that's the last part to develop and so one of the things i i try to give that tool to parents to say 
um, just because of something I do doesn't mean that if you do it in the same way, it's going to affect you the same. It'll affect you differently because you're still developing, because, um, you know, the laws in our, in our country um, affect you differently than they affect me because of your age. And so that'll affect you differently. And so I, th I think it's important for parents to talk about these issues with their children. And it might even be, and if, and if that's the thing, if they're, if they're young people are throwing it in their face, oh, well, I see you drinking with Uncle Jerry every night after work and having four or five beers, like, well, then maybe it's time for you to th rethink about like, you know, maybe I shouldn't be having four or five beers with Uncle Jerry every single night after, after work, right? You know, maybe I, you know, maybe I lessen that, you know, and I take that to heart and, you know, recognize that, you know, I mean, from the mouths of babes, right? I mean, like kids will tell you what they see. They are very observant. You know they don't miss a lot, and um, and and you know if you're trying to call them out and stuff, a lot of times they'll throw it back in your face and be like, "Don't be a hypocrite." And so you know you know not every adult is open to that. Not everyone wants to like look at re relook at their own behavior and change their own behavior, or or a lot of people don't even think there's anything wrong with the amount that they drink. Um, you know, and so for me, it's not for me to tell you all oh, you all should drink less. It's really about, you know, thinking about there are different ways we can talk to our young people just because we do something um, and our young people call us out on it does not make it okay for our young people to do those things. Um, and so, um, but it's important for us to have something else to say besides because I said so, right? And so I think, um, you know, kind of leaning back a little bit on the science of things, helping young people recognize, look, you know, you, you still got a lot of growing to do, buddy. You know, there's still a lot for um, your body to develop. And because of those things, um, introducing these substances now in, in the process is not a, it's not a good, it's, it's really not a good thing to do. Um, if you can wait a little while longer, give your body a little bit more time to fully get to that closer, like done period, then when you introduce those substances, they're not going to have such negative effect on you. They're not going to um, hurt your growth and development as much if you wait until after you're more fully developed. And mm -hmm. also, you know, I mean, the legal stuff. I mean, the reality is, is like, you know, I know in the state of Wisconsin, you know, parents can take their kids and if they're with their kids or kids can legally drink, you know, that's sort of, I know that's a law in the state. Again, that's not a law everywhere. Okay. That's a Wisconsin thing. Again, leading to the sort of like some of the reasons why we see such high rates, you know, those sorts of things are, you know, that's not something that, you know, you can't do that everywhere with your kid in Wisconsin, you can, but not everywhere. Um, you know, and so, uh, you know, those sorts of things of like, you know, let's, talk to our kids about what it is and, and maybe ask them, well, why do you want to drink? You know, what, what is it? What, what part of drinking do you want, you know, to do? Like, why, why is this something you want to do? You know, and is, is it about peer pressure? So then that could lead you to a good conversation about, you know, you know, it's not always okay to just do everything that everyone else is doing. And, you know, the importance of being a leader, the importance of standing up for yourself, the importance of, you know, being an individual, um, you know, those sorts of things I think could be really powerful messages to a young person. Um, if you catch them drinking or you're worried about their drinking behaviors, you know, like, you know, ask them why, why is it that you're drinking? Is it because they think it's going to help them have fun? Um, you know, the reality is, is that alcohol, again, is a depressant, not a stimulant. Um, and alcohol in and of itself doesn't cause people to have fun. It's this expectation that it's going to cause you to have fun. People expect there to be more fun if there's alcohol at a party because that's what our expectations tell us. But the alcohol in and of itself isn't what's causing us to have fun. In fact, if anything, the alcohol in and of itself is causing us to get tired. It's causing us to get, you know, slow down because alcohol is a depressant. You know, it's not a stimulant. You know, it's not, it's not meant to wake us up or have us be 
bubbly and whatever, you know? And so I think, I think that's another big important piece that young people um, need to be shown and understand because um, until you tell them that, what they see is, um, you know, drinking celebrated on TV. What they see is, you know, ads. They see, um, you know, the bar, the multiple multitude of bars all over the place. They see their parents enjoying alcohol. I mean, that, so what they see is, wow, that's where it's fun. And mm -hmm. what they need to recognize is that, you know, there's an expectation that fun's gonna happen, but the alcohol in and of itself doesn't cause the fun. Um, and, and that alcohol is a depressant. I think a lot of people are surprised when they find out alcohol is a depressant, you know, and it's important for people to recognize that alcohol affects them all very differently, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's the other thing is that like, people are like, oh, well, so-and-so is able to drink such and such and reckon, and, and it's important for them to know, like, good for them, but like, you're a different person. And so, you know, the, you know, your, the amount of blood in your system can affect how quickly you get drunk, you know, um, you know, uh, everything from, you know, another one that's a big one that a lot of people don't know is that when a person is menstruating, um, their hormones um, affect the ways in which alcohol um, uh, operates within the bloodstream. And so it's, it, so you get drunker faster and stay drunker longer while you're menstruating. Mind blown. So many young women I've talked to about that are like, are you kidding me? What? I'm like, yes, while you're menstruating, that's, that, that's what will happen. And so like how many times have we heard, oh, girls can't hand their alcohol and that sort of thing. Well, how much of it is that? How much of it is that they just had no idea. Maybe they were, you know, in the middle of their cycle and they wanted to go out drinking with their friends. And they didn't realize that like just being in that sort of situation, the way you normally drink might be too much drinking because of because mm -hmm. of what's happening in, in your life at that moment. And so, I mean, those sorts of things people don't know about. We don't talk about any of these things. We don't talk about how alcohol actually goes to our bodies. We don't talk about what a standard drink is. I'll mm -hmm. ask young people, well, what do you think? What do you think one drink is? Well, how much is one drink? And you know, and if someone says a beer, I'm like, good for you. That's right. Now that's the only alcohol that we serve that's served in a single serving um, um, <laughs> service. Everything else we serve is not in single service, right? And so then we talk about what equates a standard drink. How do you even figure that out? You know, and so, you know, you know, one, one ounce of, uh, of, of liquor is what is you know, approximately one standard drink, one ounce of liquor. So that Long Island iced tea with four or five different ounces of liquor in it, that's not one drink. That's four or five drinks. You know? <laughs> I know. That's what I was going to say. It's, it really depends on the size of that can or glass or whatever. But yeah, um, so, so interesting though. Yeah, I wish uh, you could come to all the uh, uh, middle school, high schools and talk about that multiple years in a row because it's just, um, it's just so interesting. There's always some new research coming out about that. But I, you know, I can really uh, relate to that because I have teenagers and one is, you know, gonna be in college. And, you know, just having these conversations, I think, is really helpful. But I, I do really think it hits home when you talk about the brain development, because, I mean, what parent doesn't want, you know, their child to reach their full potential? And right. if they're introducing things to their bodies that might prevent them from doing that, it's like you wouldn't want to encourage that. So um, I, I think it really hits home when you when you talk about the health impact. Um, and long-term impacts of, of alcohol use. So yeah, I mean, I love talking about alcohol, you know, and prevention uh, strategies all day long. Um, but I, I so appreciate your time today, Anthony, because I know I've taken up so much of your time already. And um, I want to um, say thank you so much. 
Um, the other thing I wanted to um, say is, you know, I want to post some resources specific to this, you know, conversation. We can kind of talk about that if we can't think of um, this, the resources right now. But just, you know, websites that youth can go to, parents can go to, community members um, about alcohol, substance use prevention, um, LGBTQ topics that they might, you know, that might be helpful. Um, would that be okay if we if we just post that on our on our yeah, blog? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I'll um I'll send you um some of my materials too. Um, I think one of the I think that so I have this map um that the map I was talking about that shows um the 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 variation of uh, uh, food to alcohol. And it is, I mean, it's wild because you look at the map and it's like variations of green. So the darker the green, the more food there is, whatever. Variations of green throughout the, throughout the country. Some places a little bit more yellow or brown, but Wisconsin is like straight up, like you can see the outline yeah. of Wisconsin, just a full of brown dots. Like, it's just so like ridiculous when you look at it like that. It's, just, it's like, wow, what's going on in Wisconsin? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen that. So I'd be really interested in looking at that too. And maybe um, if you have a screenshot of that, we can even post that on there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'll, yeah, I'll send you, um, I'll send you the, um, cause I, cause I actually print it out and hand it out um, when I do presentations. This is something I like, I, give out freely to people. And so I can just send you that document and you can put that up however you want, send it to whomever you want. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that sounds really, that sounds really great. Um, okay, so for um, resources that are mentioned on this podcast, go to our website, which is jeffcodrugfree.org. So thank you so much, Anthony. Thanks, Emmy. Bye. Bye.